1: is Trevor Crowe. Thanks for being on the show, Trevor. Hey, Whitney. Thanks for having me. Trevor founded Crowe Legal LLC to deliver sophisticated and practical legal solutions to companies, their founders, and investors, and has done so for the last 10 years. Uh, Trevor has extensive experience representing sponsors and investors in syndicated real estate deals. Trevor, thank you again for your time. I'm grateful. Uh, always, uh, you know, just somebody that's willing to come on and share your expertise and, and been in the business as long as you have. You know, why don't you give the listeners a little more about, uh, you know, who you are, maybe where you're located, and let's let's jump Jump into you know your unique uh, skill set and and uh, some qualities that your firm has. Yeah, sounds good. So, Trevor Crow, as uh, Whitney mentioned,
0: and I'm an attorney here in Denver, Colorado, and I kind of grew up in the the Denver area for the most part, and went to uh, graduated from law school at Denver University in 2009, which is not a great year to graduate law school because of the downturn in the market there, but get to learn a lot about how the weather the storm there, so that that's been good experience and been practicing ever since then doing syndicated real estate deals and other business transactions. And, uh, you know, I found it, I started at several different firms in in Denver or bounced around to several different firms. And, uh, before I started my own firm, this Crow Legal in February of 2018, and now we're a small boutique business transactions firm focusing on syndicated real estate deals. It's me and two other attorneys. And yeah, we just, we've been doing it through the up and down cycles of real estate. And so it's, it's been a fun ride.
1: Nice. Well, thanks again. And and I would like to just jump in, uh, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about your firm and, and just this business in general. And, you know, you, you were telling me about just some qualities of that your firm has that you felt were very important. And I just thought, okay, you know, let's focus on that. Because I know so many of the listeners and myself, I remember, you know, when you were getting started in this business, it can seem pretty overwhelming, just building your team and, and, you know, figuring out who those people should be. And, and one very important, I mean, it just, Non-negotiable team member is your attorney, and especially your securities attorney, and you know somebody that's helping you with those legal documents. But so, let's just dive right in there, and I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. Just the qualities you were talking about about your firm, and and why those are important. And and let's jump in.
0: Yeah. So you know, I mentioned I I was at different a couple different firms before starting my own, and and the first firm I was at, I did more less real estate work and more just business transactions. And so for several entities, just, you know, startup companies, engineering companies, or other sort of software companies, we we would sometimes draft entity documents as LLCs. And so we, with that, we'd have operating agreements. And I thought I knew how to draft operating agreements. And then I, I went to a real estate firm and practiced there for a while. And I, and I quickly learned that a, a joint venture real estate operating agreement is is way different than a operating agreement for say just your typical service type business or operating company. And so I think, you know, from our standpoint, one of, one of our unique abilities is, is that we understand real estate joint ventures and putting together those operating agreements, which I, I don't think some people think they do. And, and, haven't really dived into it as much as, as we have. And so that's hard to understand them. But the thing with real estate joint ventures and syndicated deals is one, you, you obviously have to understand the securities piece of it and make sure you're not getting your client in hot water there. But the operating agreement itself, because typically, you know, real estate deals are, are done through operating agreements or limited partnership agreements. Most of our deals are LLC agreements. And really it's business term driven. And so you know, the business terms drive the deal. And I think a lot of people or some people think that attorneys can just pull an agreement off the shelf and switch out names and they have their agreement there, but it's really not the case here because it is so business term driven. And so you could have 10 deals and they all, the operating agreements for every single one of those deals look far different from the other. So understanding the business of real estate and how this works is huge. And so you you really want to, have that uh, an attorney who understands that piece of it, and, you know those those are going to vary depending on whether it's a ground up development deal, is it a, a deal where you're going to grab you know buy an existing property, maybe add some value and then flip it, is it a buy and hold strategy? I mean, all these sort of different business terms have to be memorialized in an operating agreement, and if you don't have the, that expertise and that knowledge from doing these deals and, and paying attention to what the market is you're gonna really be behind the eight ball and might might miss if miss things, or your attorney might.
1: Yeah. So do you have an example or maybe, you know, just like how you all, when you started a draft operating agreement, why it was uh, so beneficial for you all to understand, say the deal? I mean, obviously you need to know a lot about the deal when you're drafting these documents because so much of it is unique, you know, pr- I mean, is very unique per the structure of the deal, per the, I mean, the deal itself, location, all that, all those things and the team, but any examples of, of how, you know, it's so crucial that you understood the business and just understood the deal when, cr- when creating those documents?
0: Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, so for one, we, we re- represent both developers, promoters, and, you know, I kind of mix those terms together as, as the people or, or sponsors, sometimes people the people who are bringing the deal to the table. And then we also in, uh, represent investors. And so we've been on both sides of the table there and, and argued on both sides of, of what should be in the agreements. But, you know, for example, we represented a promoter on a deal and, you know, this was early on in my career, you know, and, and I think it's even more important now thinking about this, the whole COVID environment and, and what's going on with that and how there can be downturns. But one of the important provisions that we had in, in an operating agreement for for our client, there was no for sale provision. And so when there's a downturn in the market, sometimes the best option is to hold, especially if you're the you're the promoter of the deal, because as many of your listeners may or may not know, but the you know the way the promoters get paid, they sometimes get management fees, you know acquisition fees or other fees that just come off the top, right but a lot of times their big their big hit is the promote at the end of the day, so when they sell the property, you return capital, maybe you return a preferred return, and then there's a split, you know whether it's eighty twenty seventy thirty whatever it is, and the promoter gets that thirty or twenty percent pop, which is their big payday, right? They've done all the work, they've put all the work into this and they've developed this project and now it's time to sell. And if they sell it for this profit that can cover all the return of capital preferred return items, then, then they get this big payday. Well, if it's a downturn in the market and the investors can force the sale then there could be no promote. You know, maybe it's just return of capital preferred return and a little bit off the top and and investors walk away with the money and developers put in all this work and doesn't get the big payday. And so we represented clients and had negotiated hard to get out those for sale provisions so they can make sure that they're selling in a market that's going to be ideal for them and to actually realize the, the benefits of it. So it's worthwhile to them to be able to hold on to the property for another year or, or 18 months or whatever it is to get a better market or whatever, even lease up more, or get whatever to, to get a better cap rate and sell that property so they can actually get paid. And so that's just one example, I think, of, of where we've helped out our clients to, to make sure that the business deal is memorialized properly into the agreement.
1: Or what's a good way to know that our securities attorney understands deals like that? Uh, Because I know that, I mean, you know, maybe they, is it just length of time in the business or, or is it, you know, maybe they've been part of some deals personally, or what's something you would look for there?
0: Yeah, well, I think you raised a good point there in in the way that you phrased it because you you mentioned securities attorneys, and uh, you're a securities attorney, and so you know you really need somebody in my mind either a firm that has somebody that's specialized in securities, and then somebody separate who specialized in these joint venture operating agreements for real estate deals, or you have somebody you know, for example, the way I've practiced, I've done I've done all that. So when I was at you know, firms, the real estate firm that I was at prior to starting my own, you know, I was the guy who did the operating agreements and all the securities work. And that's the way I've I've done it. And so you need somebody who understands both sides of it, either whether it's one or or multiple people, but understanding the security side and the exemptions is, is certainly one thing understanding the business terms and what to write in that operating agreement is another. And so you want to ask questions about both of those, in my opinion. You want to make sure that you find somebody who not only knows the business side of real estate deals and can draft those operating agreements, but also has the securities expertise to make sure that when you're offering equity interest in a, in a LLC, that you're not running afoul of any of the securities laws.
1: Would that be something that you would typically have in-house like both of those things specialties in under one roof with one attorney or or is that something that the listener may have to think about having two different attorneys for?
0: Certainly, you may have to think about that depending on who you're talking to. Like for our firm, we have we have a, both of those expertise in, in our shop and so we can we can handle both elements of that. Larger firms, you know, usually have separate attorneys that have that. Maybe one's doing the securities work and one's doing the the operating agreement. But if you're, you're dealing with a smaller shop or just a, a, you know, a real estate attorney, uh, there's a lot of times that real estate attorney doesn't do securities work. And so you want to make sure that they do or if they don't do it, that they have somebody that does. So for example, you know we work with other law firms that have real estate clients and that are doing syndicated deals, but they don't do securities work. And so they'll call us and we'll do just the securities work for them they can do the operating agreement, they do the entity formation stuff and, and they're, they're comfortable with that. They're just not comfortable with securities work. And, and a lot of that boils down to your malpractice policy because if you check the box that you do securities work to your malpractice insurer as an attorney they're going to up your, your malpractice rate. Uh, so you're paying more, more premiums. So unless you're doing a decent amount of that work, it may not make sense to check the box there. And also if you just don't have the competence in that area, you certainly don't want to check the box and, and try to practice in that area because there's a lot of, a lot of pitfalls that you can, that can happen there. So definitely an inquiry you want to make on both elements of that. And it it will vary on, on firm and, and by attorneys on whether they have both of those expertise.
1: Are there any, say, uh, you know, like regulation changes that you see coming or in the future that we should know about or be aware of? You you know, the, the securities law landscape
0: is always changing and there's the SEC is always getting hit with comments on. It's difficult to raise capital. This whole accredited investor definition, you know, forecloses the opportunity for a lot of people who don't have a million dollars in the bank to invest in deals. And so there's been there's been a lot of changes in my career. You know, we had the Jobs Act when I first came out. And I know there's a lot of Jobs Acts out there. Everybody wants to call every legislation that comes out. They want to call it the Jobs Act because, you know, everybody's so focused on, on creating jobs. But, you know, there was a the Jobs Act. I forget the year of that, but I think it was 11, 2011 or something like that. And then now there's been further regulation changes on with, you know, crowdfunding and Reg A+, and things like that. But, but other than paying attention to any changes to this accredited investor definition, there's always talk about it, but until actually legislation comes up, it's hard for me to to say or predict because it's a constantly changing thing. Uh, A lot of comments coming out about it, but not always any different rules coming out. This is how I explain to clients all the time is securities laws can be boiled down to to very simple statement. I mean, when you're selling securities, which you, when you're selling interest in LLC, unless somebody has any you know, significant management rights, you have to presume that that's a security that you're selling. And when you're selling a security, you have three options. You either register it, which is like an IPO. And it's a very expensive process. You got to go file a registration statement with the sec and go back and forth. And so that's, nobody's doing that with, you know, smaller real syndicated real estate deals. They're exempt from registration. So you got registered exempt from registration or it's illegal. You don't want to be illegal. You don't want to register. <laughs> so you got to find an exemption and you got to find exemption both at the state and federal law under federal and state law for where your investors are investing from. And similarly, which comes up often is a lot of times clients come to me and say, well, we have this person who said, Hey, they can raise money for us. They can get money and they're just going to take 5%, 10% of, of whatever they raise. And so the first question is, well, are they, are they a broker dealer? Are they a licensed broker dealer? because anybody who's facilitating the transaction securities has to be either registered, exempt from registration, or they're committing a legal act. So again, you know, if they had the registration, that's great. You don't want to be illegal. And the exemption, you know, there's exemptions that apply to promoters or owners, people who have ownership in the entity. So for example, a company, if you start an LLC and then you you know, you're promoting a deal, you have some property locked up in a purchase and sale agreement, and now you need to go raise money. You can go out and, you know, depending on what exemption you're using, you don't want to necessarily generally solicit maybe, but you can go out and find investors. As long as you're not taking transactional based compensation, you're exempt from the broker dealer registration requirements. So that's just kind of a a simple rundown of, of the securities laws, both at the broker dealer and sale of securities level.
1: Yeah, no, I like that. I uh, I like just laying it out like that. We don't we don't want to be on the illegal end. Uh, those three options there, that's for sure, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, and so, any issues that you see in the industry right now, just through the deals that you're doing, or even common questions like that, that hey, you know, what about bringing this guy in uh, to raise capital? You know, uh, we've we've talked about that a lot, uh, that issue. But anything else that you see that that's happening in the industry right now, as far as on on your end on the legal side, that that we should be aware. Of or just anything,
0: yeah. I think the strange times that we're dealing with now. I think it kind of goes back to the the example that I gave. One of the things to really pay attention to, in my mind, is the term and making because you know these you in these agreements you're trying to align interests as best you can. And investors who come in, they want to know when they're going to cash out, when they can cash out. They're tying up their money and they want to know when they can cash out. You know, promoters want to do the best they can to develop the project or value add or whatever they're doing to the project and find a good sale at some point. But I think making sure there's flexibility in those provisions on when the term of this deal is going to be done. When do we have to sell? Do, are we Can we be forced to sell? Or is that just the promoter's decision to make whenever they deem it's it's right? So that's one big thing. I think capital contributions is another big one. Yeah, which you know, a lot of times investors come in and they say, Hey, we're going to put in this initial capital contribution and we don't want to put any more money. And so I don't know what the environment's, it's hard to say what the environment's going to look like moving forward now. And so I think some flexibility in how those capital contributions work, because you can put out a budget. If it's an existing operating property, you know, for example, in the hospitality industry, you're a hotel, your budget that you made a year ago is not the correct budget, and so See, if six you months have, ago, <laughs> yeah, six months ago, right? If you have cost overruns, who has to come to the table with the capital contributions? And so that's a big one to think about and think through, because you know when we draft these agreements and when we're advising clients, we try to tell them, hey. I know you have a good idea of what you think is going to happen, but we need to make sure that this agreement has the flexibility to weather the storm of up and down cycles. Cause they inevitably happen. We can't predict them or we'd all be, wealthy and, and doing other things. And so, you know, real estate is a great way to build wealth and obviously it is. And and so there's a, but you've got to be able to weather the storm of, of up and down cycles. And so trying to incorporate that into agreements, I think is is a difficult thing. And even more important now, one of the other things that I guess is force majeure clauses, which, you know, are, are something that you learn about in law school, but every attorney has skipped over that provision or or reviewed it very quickly, you know, in, in the, as far as I've known, since I've been practicing until now, now that's become a huge provision. And so can you go outside of the budget without having approval for emergency items, you know, things that are force majeure type events, things where it wasn't predicted, it wasn't predictable at the time and it's out of your control. You know that's another thing to kind of pay attention to now. I think that is more important than it
1: was previously thought, at least. All right, Trevor. Unfortunately, we just have a few minutes left, so a few final questions. What's a way you've recently improved your business that we could apply to our business?
0: It's a good question. For me, systems are key. So checklists are key. You know, I started this firm as I mentioned in two thousand and in February of eighteen, and I thought, oh well, I'm going to have you know, I don't know where the next clients come in and and I'll have a bunch of time to just create all my systems and have everything lined up. So when clients come in the door, we can just be as efficient as possible. And I got busy right away, which was fortunate. And so I, I'm still, it's a long process. It takes longer than you think, but I think developing systems in your business, um, whether it's checklists, whether it's there's software automation, you know, we use, we use Trello as a, as kind of a project management tool. And I think that's been helpful. But, you know, systems is, is what I would say has really helped my firm and my firm grow and be able to accomplish things efficiently and do the things that we want to do. That's been the biggest, I think, element.
1: Is there anything specific that's helped with that, like a, a book or something other than Trello or anything like that that's like helped you to implement systems? You
0: know, there's a, well, I listened to a lot of podcasts. And so there's, there's a couple attorney based podcasts that talk about this one book. And and I don't know how relevant this will be to all your listeners, but there's, there's a book by uh, an attorney called the power of the system. I think his name is John Fisher, which again, it, the book was written from the perspective of a personal injury attorney in New York. And, but he, the systems that he talked about in there were applied to a lot of law firms. Some of them don't apply to me as a business transactional type firm, but a lot of them were good. And I thought that was a, that was a good one. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's the one I would, I would, would say, and I would recommend, especially for any attorneys listening, but anybody else who, who wants to kind of see the way, you know, this guy put it his together. I thought it was, it was very interesting and helpful for me.
1: Nice. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success?
0: Time. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's one of those things where I don't really... If I knew exactly where every client came from, I would do more of that. But it's really just been out speaking, networking, doing deals, and being in the market. And, and so I think that's been... And it just takes a while to get your name out there and, and get known. And I think it, this applies to real estate people in, involved in real estate. And you, know, you just got to get out there, get your name out there. That's where you learn about deals. That's where you create your pipeline. Uh, so for me, it's, it's, it's taken a while. It's a long sales cycle. And it probably is in, in real estate as well, if you're, you're more on the real estate promoter type side. But I think so time and, and just being consistent, staying in the market and, and staying visible has is, is been the biggest contributor to success. And how do you like to give back? Well, we do a lot of pro bono work and we also take on a lot of smaller deals and and give discount rates. So even if we're not doing it pro bono, we help a lot of smaller clients, you know, that first time real estate, you know, transaction person who's coming in. They're honestly a lot more work for us than the person who's done 20 deals, you know, because they, the person who's done, you know, this is, none of this stuff is rocket science. And once you've done five or six deals, you kind of understand the operating agreements and understand the the big negotiation provisions and things like that. And so you, you know, even those bigger deals are sometimes easier to to do from the attorney standpoint, because there's less handholding uh, on the client side. But we we work with small clients who are doing just, you know, a, a small raises. We'll help them navigate securities laws and also put together their operating agreement. And we can usually give them a flat fee of, of something that's reasonable and that they can afford. And, and And the reason we do it, you know, I guess it's not all giving back part of it is we, we want them to be successful and then they grow and then they have more deals. And then we 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 have more clients, you know, more deals for us to work on. And so yeah, I guess it's not all altruistic, but it's, you know, we, we give back in that way.
1: Awesome. Well, appreciate you giving back in that way, Trevor, and just giving back in your time today, uh, just sharing numerous things with us today. Whether it's from the qualities of of your firm, you know that, that we should be looking for in any firm that we're considering partnering with, but then just understanding, uh, just that they understand how the business works, but then regulatory changes and any issues that you've seen right now in the in the marketplace. Grateful for that. Uh, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you.
0: Crow dot legal is the is the website. So www C R O W dot legal, so it's not a dot com, it's a dot L E G A L. And my email is trevor at crow dot legal, and my phone number is seven two zero two three zero seven one two three. And we do deals, real estate deals. Even though we're based in Denver, we do real real estate deals all over. So I mean, we got deals going on in Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, all all, all across as well as obviously in Colorado. So feel free to call me email me anytime. Happy to answer questions. Happy to talk. Uh, We don't have an initial consulting fee or anything like that. We just, we just happy to talk to you. And if, if it's, we're the best fit to represent you, then we'll move forward. If not, we can usually direct you to the right place.
1: Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode.